We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by regular ICRT commentator, Ross Feingold. Good evening. And on the telephone by Financial Times reporter, Edward White. Good evening, Gavin. And tonight we discuss talk here in Taiwan of a US-China trade war, renewed calls from the United States to sell Taiwan advanced jet fighters, a pending state visit to Africa, China granting Li Jingyu an entry permit to visit her jailed husband, some troublesome protest camps in Taipei, and a prison official's con to get an EMBA. But we'll begin with news that an 18-year-old Taiwanese exchange student has been arrested in the U.S. state of Pennsylvania for allegedly threatening to massacre his high school classmates. Now, Upper Derby police say the student brought a high-caliber bullet to school, showed it to a classmate, and also showed the same student a video of himself in a mask operating a flamethrower. Now, he also allegedly warned the classmate not to go to school on May the 1st, as he's planning to go on a shooting spree that day. However, police say the student later told the class mate that he was joking. But police, of course, in America didn't find it very funny, and he's now been charged with making a terrorist threat and a first-degree misdemeanor. Now, police found what have been described as a military-style arsenal in his suburban Philadelphia bedroom, and that included ammunition, a ballistic vest, a crossbow, a ski mask, and gun-making components. Now, the boy's mother, Di Ying, who is a well-known opera actress here in Taiwan, is calling the matter a misunderstanding and said that her son was just joking about the massacre gun threat. Now, a lawyer for the 18-year-old in America says that his client is a harmless teenager who simply didn't understand how such actions would be interpreted by his classmates. Now, the boy remains in detention and his next court hearing is on April the 11th. So, Ross, you're the American here. What about all this then? And a lawyer, Gavin, as you know. Yeah, uh, there we go. Uh, and I think the, there are a number of legal issues here that you identified in the introduction. One, the voluminous evidence uh, that, that he had been researching and had acquired some tools towards this plot. And also, uh, you mentioned his age. He's 18. He's going to be charged as an adult, very likely. He can't claim that he's a child at 18, even if he's still in a secondary school. Uh, this, is a, this is a tough case, and what his mother said is not necessarily going to uh, be the get-out-of-jail card uh, or his lawyer claiming cultural misunderstanding because he's from Taiwan, uh, which I saw that the lawyer had said in some of his media interviews. Uh, this is no laughing matter. Uh, at any time, uh, but especially um, just a few weeks after the horrible tragedy in southern Florida, which was perpetrated by someone of, of similar age who was a student at that school. So people are on alert. And this, frankly, is no different than um, using the bomb word at the airport or on an aircraft. You just don't do it. And as, 18, as an 18-year-old, uh, he should have known better. And uh, frankly, I, I would be very supportive of uh, a very enthusiastic prosecution. And what, he, what, what could he be looking at? Well, to, it, it, in this kind of case, it's more likely that they would reach a, a plea agreement. Um, but I would still expect uh, there to be significant jail time. Um, the, the, these charges, and again, because you, you mentioned a number of uh, pieces of evidence, uh, they could all be separate charges that would add up to a very lengthy 
a set of charges for the 18-year-old and uh, a plea agreement. He would plead guilty to some, but, but and the prosecutors would drop some of the other charges. Uh, but I would expect the prosecutors to seek more than a, a year in prison for this kind of activity, okay. uh, especially given his age and, the, again, the aftermath. That it's only a few weeks after the terrible tragedy in southern Florida. You can't claim that you had no idea that people would be very scared by this. But even putting that aside, uh, these activities alone uh, are, are crimes, and they're serious crimes. And, and the, the fact that it occurred so recently after the Southern Florida tragedy, uh, it, in some ways, it's, it, it's irrelevant. Uh, it's just that people are more worried. Uh, but as far as the criminal charges are concerned, uh, the fact that it happens so, so soon after uh, a shoot, mass shooting at a school is irrelevant. And uh, again, I, I would expect prosecutors to seek, seek the most possible charges they could get and, and then eventually plea agreement. And uh, in the current environment, uh, when you commit a felony and you're, you're not a citizen, you get deported as soon as you're out of prison. So I, I would expect that this young man will find it very difficult to ever return to the United States. Right. And his next court hearing, like I said, is on April the 11th. So I'm sure we'll be coming back to this story in a few weeks. Anyway, moving on. And there's been talk here in Taiwan of a U.S.-China trade war and how it will affect the island. Now, Premier William Lai is saying that he believes such a trade war will give Taiwan opportunities to transform itself. Now, Lai told lawmakers that he believes many Taiwanese investors in China could choose to return to the island. And he says that this will give them the opportunity to pursue other areas investment here at home. And speaking in an interview with Nikkei News this week, Economics Minister Chen Rongjin said that the government is seeking to disentangle the island's economy from China's. And he went on to say that the government will support research and development and encourage Taiwan-owned businesses in China to invest more here at home. Now, reports have have said, and these are reports and they are estimates, and they've said that the US-China trade war could result in Taiwan's GDP declining by some 2%. So 2%, Ross, that seems like a rather large number. I absolutely agree with you. That is more than a material number. It's very significant. And we knew this was going to happen. This is no surprise. We knew that President Trump's election could result in a number of positive and negative outcomes for Taiwan, whether it's on the security front, the political relationship, or the trade relationship. It is no secret that many Taiwanese companies, whether the largest companies listed on the stock market to small and medium enterprises, have manufacturing facilities in China. Those products are often shipped to the United States in addition to other markets around the world. To the extent that Taiwanese-owned companies are manufacturing in China and shipping those goods to the United States, they're in scope for increased tariffs or other non-tariff trade barriers that might be imposed by President Trump as part of his policies to recalibrate the United States trade relationship with China. Now, it's taken a little longer than many people expected, given the rhetoric during the election campaign in 2016. A lot, the expectation was that President Trump would seek to do this very quickly. There are other issues on the agenda in 2017, including North Korea, that, that kind of dictated uh, the United States needed to seek more cooperation with China. Regardless, we are now in a phase where President Trump is implementing trade measures against China, and Taiwan doesn't get a free pass, or the Taiwan companies don't get a free pass. Uh, on the other hand, though, with the things that William Lai talked about, you can't move a factory overnight from China to Taiwan. And encouraging Taiwan companies that already have investments to, in China to return to Taiwan 
this is something previous governments have talked about repeatedly, whether it was Ma and Zhou's government, Chen Shui-bian's government, even going back to Li Denghui's government in the 90s when Taiwan companies had commenced investment on a large scale in China. Uh, very difficult to do, and they'll, they'll make that decision based on the economics of uh, doing so at the time, and that includes labor costs, land acquisition, and a number of uh, em- employees, pa- talent pool. There are a number of large factors. The fact that uh, their goods going from China to the United States might be facing higher tariffs could mean their profits will suffer. That does not mean you pack up your factory and return it to Taiwan either. So, Edward, do you see vast amounts of of Taiwanese that are investing in China coming back to Taiwan because of the U.S.-China trade war? I think Ross made a good point that, you know, to move factories overnight is um, not very realistic. I think the most important thing to stress on this is that a trade war, you know, in a trade war, the biggest loser is most likely to be uh, the U.S. consumers, they're the biggest consumers of goods around the world. And specific sectors will perhaps have near-term winners and losers. Some will get exemptions, some won't. But the broader hit really comes from negative sentiment and what that does for growth. And therefore, Taiwan's exporters as a whole, regardless of whether they're subject uh, to exemptions or whether they are directly hit by these um, tariffs, Taiwan's export sector, which is what drives the economy, is likely to be um, hit by that negative sentiment as overall world or global growth uh, lowers. Now, if you look at, say, the semiconductor sector, most analysts that I've talked to in the recent couple of weeks as as these tariffs have been, I guess, um, becoming closer and closer, most say that Taiwan's um, semiconductor sectors or semiconductor companies are so high-tech or so specialist that it's not easy for thing, for people in, say, China to switch suppliers from Taiwan to the U.S. as they actually offered to last week. So I think that what you're going to see in Taiwan is the broader economy will take a hit rather than uh, sort of issues for specific companies or sectors straight away. And we've, we, we kind of left out another significant aspect of this conversation, which is Taiwan is currently excluded from the CPTPP as well as the RCEP, uh, and it lacks bilateral free trade agreements with its significant trading partners, with the exception of Singapore. So it's also not a solution to say, let's just focus on business with some other uh, group of countries or a bilateral country where we have uh, trade agreements, because they don't exist for Taiwan. And it's it's uh, really unlikely that those would happen in the near term anyway. It's, it's not like the European Union is going to negotiate a free trade agreement with Taiwan in the near term. They're a bit busy with Brexit. Same thing with the United Kingdom. Canada is seeking a free trade agreement with China. They're not seeking a free trade agreement with Taiwan right now. Taiwan wants to be in the CPTPP, but uh, we don't see the other side, the, the countries that are members, you know, the original TPP without the United States, uh, really doing anything substantive at this stage to welcome Taiwan in. And as a matter of policy, Taiwan's not seeking to join the RCEP because it's led by China. Right, Edward. I mean, the Premier has obviously touted opportunities for Taiwan. I mean, do you think the, word, the use of the word opportunities might be a bit grandiose in such an occasion? I think so. I think it's probably important for people to know the context of those comments. As I understand them, they were made in response to questions during a, at the Legislative Yuan from legislators. They've probably been slightly taken out of context and slightly misreported as, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if he was exactly saying that, this, that these tariffs are a good thing for Taiwan. I don't think that's probably the 
full sort of nature of his comments. Whether or not there, like I said, you know, specific sectors may have some winners and losers, that's that's possible. But because um, the overall global growth is likely to be negatively affected by this, and given Taiwan's economy is so reliant on exports broadly, I just don't see very much upside uh, at all for for anyone, frankly, not just Taiwan, but for any countries that um, you know, even the US who are meant to benefit from these uh, from these tariffs. U.S. consumers are likely going to be paying more for products. So I, I just don't see um, a global trade war benefiting anyone. And of course, there was a meeting, a secret meeting, supposedly in Taipei, between Taiwan's Semiconductor Manufacturing Chairman Morris Jung and a U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary for Commerce and Manufacturing, name of Ian Steff. Now, of course, that meeting, Edward, came on the back of a report in your pink newspaper that Beijing has offered to buy more semiconductors from the United States by diverting purchases from Taiwan and South Korea, again, possibly hurting Taiwan's one of its biggest industries. That's right. So we had, uh, so in the, in the Financial Times, um, officials in Beijing had spoken to our journalists there and suggested that uh, as part of China's effort to, I guess, appease the US, they had offered to divert semiconductor purchases that they would usually make from Taiwan and South Korea and instead make purchases from U.S. semiconductor companies. Um, I've spoken to several, uh, or, you know, half a dozen um, Taiwan-based analysts about this, and I just don't think it's um, as simple as that. The products that companies like Morris Young's uh, TSMC that they make are uh, not replicable in other countries. It's not something that you can simply choose to um, take from a U.S. supplier or a Taiwan supplier. These are very specialized products that only Taiwanese companies make. And yes, they do manufacture, manufacture them in China, but um, ultimately these companies are headquartered in Taiwan. So what the nature of those discussions were between the trade representatives and uh, Mr. Jiang, we're not too sure, but I would say that those sorts of discussions are probably pretty commonplace. Taiwan's, you know, TSMC is one of Taiwan's biggest companies, and I'd be surprised if they're not meeting with U.S. trade officials every time trade officials come through Taiwan. Right, we'll move on from there, but only slightly, as this news also involves Taiwan and the United States. As Senators John Cornyn and James Einhoff wrote to President Donald Trump on the 26th of March, urging him to support the sale of F-35Bs or additional F-16V advanced jet fighters to Taiwan in order to boost the island's air defence capabilities. Now, the two Republican senators wrote that the fighters will have a positive impact on Taiwan's self-defence and would act as a necessary deterrent to China's aggressive military posturing across the Asia-Pacific region. And the letter went on to say that it's now been 25 years since Taiwan last bought new build fighters, and this has become a challenge for the Taiwan Air Force, and Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen recognises this challenge and has stated her willingness to take decisive action, including budgeting significant funds to procure the new fighters. And US Taiwan Business Council President Rupert Hammond Chambers has come out in full support of the call, and he warned that a failure to sell new built fighters to Taiwan will regulate the Taiwan Air Force to marginalization and eventual extinction. Ross? Well, this is not a new topic. This has been going on for a number of years. There are two significant components to this discussion. One is the U.S. going to agree to offer the aircraft to Taiwan, and there's some issues within that discussion. And two, is the budget going to be made available from the Taiwan side? We, we have to keep in mind, and, and Gavin, you're an expert in this, so you know better than us, uh, you can't just buy one. 
You can't just buy two, actually. To make this an effective deterrent, you have to buy a number of aircraft. You need redundancy. You need to train the personnel. You need spare parts. And uh, given past experience, you probably need to buy a lot of spare parts now because you don't know if they'll be made available by a U.S. administration in the future. Um, these are so many hypotheticals that we don't seem any closer to this becoming a reality. Edward? I think the the broader question or starting point is, have things changed so much in U.S.-Taiwan-China relations that this, the, the, something like the sale of these um, air, aircraft that was completely off the table, this was not something that was seen as a realistic um, possibility just a few months ago, have things moved so much that... Um, we're now in a space where this is really going to happen. And, I mean, I would concede that, you know, we're in a much more unpredictable world with anti-China or pro-Taiwan voices um, becoming louder or, or perhaps getting heard more in the White House or in Washington. And we've seen that with the Taiwan Travel Act um, and, you know, movement on more normalized arms sales. But to say that, um, you know, Taiwan is, is that much, or that the U.S. support for Taiwan is such that they would actually do something which is seen as... Uh, whether we like it or not, a very provocative measure in Beijing. My guess is that's still um, fairly unlikely. That said, I think there are some other options um, that's being talked about in terms of perhaps training, as a first step, training Taiwanese pilots to use these aircraft before selling them. Um, that might be more possible. Um, and as, as Ross was sort of alluding to, you know, there has to be a question around Taiwan's willingness to buy these things. Um, Tsai, Tsai England's also, you know, the president's been careful not to rattle the cage, um, so to speak, with China. And it might be seen as an unnecessary provocation um, at what is already a pretty sensitive time in China-U.S. relations. So, yeah, my guess is that this is um, perhaps not likely to happen at this stage. Although we have to keep in mind that the new national security advisor, John Bolton, uh, has been very supportive of U.S arms sales to Taiwan. So that might also be a factor in this conversation. And uh, uh, we do know his views on U.S.-Taiwan relations and, and arms sales. Uh, but obviously, it's an unknown whether he supports uh, this particular sale and would lobby for it internally within the United States government. We just don't know at this stage. And the other thing I would just say is that, you know, when you talk to people in Washington, we, we all think in Taiwan, um, Taiwan, China and U.S. relations are the most important global issue. But of course, you know, the U.S. Is, um, has multiple major issues that they're dealing with at the moment um, in terms of foreign policy and North Korea, obviously the trade issue that we've talked about, as well as the sort of looming deadline around the Iran nuclear deal. So perhaps it's just that while this is a big story in Taiwan, and quite rightly, um, it just may not be something that is front and centre amongst um, people in Washington at the moment. Right, of course, here in Taiwan, the newly appointed Defence Minister Yen De Fa told lawmakers earlier this month that Taiwan is still interested in buying the F-35 fighter jets from the United States, but has not yet made any official request to purchase the aircraft. They've just been telling everyone they want to without actually filling in the paperwork, which of course is not going to get them nice new glitzy aeroplanes. Anyway, now moving on again, and we're going to move somewhere else this time because we're going to move to Africa. And that's because President Tsai Ing-wen is expected to make a state visit to the continent next month. Now, according to the presidential office, Tsai will visit Swaziland in sort of mid-April time, April the 17th, I believe. Now, it will, of course, be Tsai's first trip to Africa since she took office, and the visit is being arranged to mark the 50th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic ties between Taiwan and Swaziland. Tsai Ing-wen won't, however, be going to Burkina Faso, which is Taiwan's other 
ally in Africa because apparently the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here says that the government in Burkina Faso have other international events going on at the same time and it would be inconvenient for her to travel there. And there's some questions over that because, of course, Burkina Faso's recently had a spate of rather nasty terror attacks. So, Ross, trip to Africa. Well, I think you just identified a couple of key points. You start out by saying it's a trip to Africa, first trip to the continent. Actually, as you also said, it's a trip to a single country. Uh, it's not even a trip to the uh, all the countries, two, uh, which recognize the Republic of China and Taiwan. It's a trip to only one. There are no stopovers planned, which is a pretty interesting aspect to this trip, because as we all know, uh, one of the benefits of visiting the countries that formally recognize the Republic of China and Taiwan is it gives the president, um, currently Tsai Ing-wen, an excuse to stop over often in Hawaii or other U.S. cities like Houston, Boston, or New York City. Uh, as of now, the government is saying there will be no stopover. President Tsai and her entourage will fly nonstop from Taipei to Swaziland. Uh, we'll, we should keep that in view. We'll see if there's a surprise stopover that they haven't talked about yet, because that's sometimes the way Taiwan does this, because the country that is willing to allow the president to stop over doesn't want to uh, get China's ire beforehand. So often they wait. And we saw that with Ma Zhou, who did stopovers both in India and in Dubai during his overseas travel. So we'll see if that happens again. Edward. Well, I mean, yeah, Ross has sum, summed up the nuance of these trips, um, which is important and is followed, you know, obviously locally in Taiwan very well. I, I would say broadly, you know, this, um, this sort of continual support and spending, you know, precious time and money from the president to travel to these countries, you can really argue it both ways. Um, and you have to have to concede, I guess, that the people in Taiwan don't really like it, um, understandably, when an ally leaves Taiwan, as we saw with Panama most recently. But I guess there's the other view on, on these sorts of trips, or the other view that these trips bring up, is that more effort should be going into um, Taiwan's uh, non-formal diplomatic relations with countries like US, uh, Japan, Australia even. And I would say that um, perhaps you could argue and not, not enough effort has been going into those um, with relations with those parties, if you look at the key issues that are holding things back, you know, meat imports with the U.S. or imports from uh, Japan's nuclear-affected areas um, with, with Japan, those are the areas where gains need to be made. You know, those are issues that have been on the um, radar now for some time, and if the Tsai administration spends another four years, however many years, not getting any pro making any progress on that, then I think th I think those are the sort of bigger diplomatic problems that Taiwan faces at the moment, rather than maintaining support with these um, you know somewhat motley group of uh, of loyal allies that they have around the world. Well, it's always a struggle uh, with specific countries as well uh, because. Their systems are often not as democratic as we would like, Swaziland being an example. Uh, some of the formal uh, countries that formally recognize Taiwan uh, have been known to steal, or the politicians have been known to steal the aid that Taiwan provides. Um, that's been a recurring problem as well. However, uh, it's hard to walk away from this because the votes that these countries often give to Taiwan in international forums, such as the United Nations or the World Health Assembly, is crucially important to maintaining 
the argument that this is an independent country, even if it is lacking in formal recognition by most countries around the world. So the the value of the diplomatic relations is uh, very hard to put a dollar figure on, and, and that's what justifies the time and expense that goes into this, even though uh, we might not like it here in Taiwan. No, I mean, I, I agree. And like I said, I think you can make the argument pretty solidly both ways. I guess, you know, ideally from the Taiwan side, they would come up with a formula that would involve um, sending very high-level visitors to those countries and perhaps not the president. Um, that might be something that would um, work work for both sides. But as, as Ross identified and, you know, having this formal recognition even among 20 um, small countries remains uh, critical for Taiwan keeping up its reputation and keeping up its image at international um, international bodies. And we have to take a short break now, but we will right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and the wife of pro-democracy advocate Li Mingzhe travelled to and returned from China this week after being allowed to visit her husband at the Zhishan prison in Hunan province. And speaking to reporters on her return, Li Jingyu said that she and her husband were separated by glass, but they were allowed to talk for 30 minutes, and she told him that his case and the charges against him had garnered international attention. Now, the visit, of course, was the first time China has allowed Li Jingyu to see her husband since he was sentenced to five years in prison in November of last year on charges of subversion of state power. Now, Li Jingyu said she's filed an application with the prison to visit her husband again next month. And the Mainland Affairs Council is describing the visit as a positive step that will help cross-strait interaction. So, Ed, the first visit since her husband was sentenced and she's already planning to go back again. And, of course, this trip didn't actually garner as much media attention as her previous attempts to travel to China did. No, that's right. I think um, her has uh, Li Jingyu has made um, a sort of effort to garner as much international attention over her husband's case as pro- as possible. And I think now that he, after his trial um, last year, has been completed and he's now in prison, the attention has probably um, waned somewhat. I think the important thing to say with this case is that it is, continues um, to have a chilling effect on NGOs in Taiwan and further afield that are trying to work with people in China. You know, um, his imprisonment was based on very likely a false confession. Um, it's seen as a breach of international human rights. And ultimately, um, you know, the Taiwan government and the international community was unable um, perhaps unwilling to help him in this case. And that's the, that's the main thing um, to remember, yeah, to remember with, with this case. Well, the facts still remain murky. You know, who exactly was he representing when he was there? Uh, why didn't the Taiwan government more vociferously support his release? We have to remember there was a Chinese dissident who came here at a similar time seeking asylum, and the Taiwan government kind of told him thanks, but no thanks. Uh, there, even though there was there, there was some thought that this was by way of trade uh, for Li Mingzhe uh, that Taiwan wouldn't let Zhang Xiangrong uh, stay here. 
Uh, there's been some other proposals along the way about potential trades, uh, such as the young man uh, who was a student at Jiangsu University who was arrested for being a spy for China, uh, a Chinese student who was studying here in Taiwan. Uh, none of okay. this is none of this has come to fruition. Um, so. Uh, you know, he might have to serve out his full term, and uh, hopefully he won't get be forgotten here. Uh, but uh, it, it's sort of going in that direction, right? He's not on on the public agenda as much as he was in the immediate aftermath of his arrest or his sentencing. That would be my question, because of course Li Jingyu has said she wants to go and visit her husband again next month. So will it be a monthly event where she travels to China? And will this, because she goes every month, it becomes repetitive, and the general public go, "Oh God, it's her again." Well, that that's a possibility, but I also don't think the Chinese authorities would be that enthusiastic to welcome her every month uh, as. As tragic as that would be, uh, you know, they, they control the access to their prison system, and they're not going to give her greater access than other relatives you know, in China, for example, of people who are in prison get. Uh, so she shouldn't expect uh, China to even follow its own rules, let, let alone you know, give any more treatment or better treatment, better access. Uh, you know, there, there's media reports about things she wants to send him, food, reading materials that the Chinese authorities will not accept. That China would do that to who's ever in jail there. They're, they're not giving any worse treatment to Li Mingzhe. Uh, but uh, her PR strategy, as it, as it were, uh, is also open to um, criticism as well. Yeah, I mean, I think... If you go back to the beginning of the, this case when he was arrested or detained um, and there wasn't much known about what had ha- what, what he'd been doing, at that stage there's an argument that had uh, his wife, Li Jingyu, not uh, been so public in her criticism with China that there was a window perhaps for the Taiwanese authorities or some back-channeling to um, to get him home. You know, we just, we just don't know those those. You know details around what was a possibility there isn't known. I mean, I've I've interviewed her before, and she's she said very you know uh, candidly that she decided that the best um, course of action was to be uh, very forceful with her criticism of China the whole way through, and that that's what her husband uh, would have wanted. Obviously, people disagree with that, and they're now living the reality of what that means, and that's. Um, as I say, uh, you know, he was forced to con- the, the viewers that he was very likely forced to confess, um, and that his, you know, if you look at what he had been uh, doing, it was a pretty minor thing of talking with Chinese activists and exchanging information through social media. And as I said at the start, that is something that has had a chilling effect on activists in Taiwan and in places like Hong Kong as well that like to that have interactions with Chinese because people are very worried that. You know, if they are people that travel, have family in China, and they go back and forth, that they could also end up in prison and be in exactly the same situation for doing things that they didn't think were illegal. Right. Let's talk about some news from Taipei now, and Taipei specifically. Now, there have been some angry words about long-running protests in the capital, and the Mayor Kerwin Jur is now calling for legislation to create special protest zones in the city. Now, the call follows the forced removal by police of tents set up outside the Legislative UN by the Alliance of Referendum for Taiwan. Now, they did that a decade ago, and the Mayor now says that new rules need to be introduced, setting time limits for protest camps along public roads and to allow for such camps to be forcibly removed 
removed if they are not taken down before the time limit expires. And of course, Mayor Kerr's calls came after local borough chiefs of areas around the Legislative UN. Well, they called on the mayor to either relocate the Legislative UN itself or financially compensate residents of the worst affected areas for the constant disturbances. So, Ed, these protest camps, they are rather unsightly, of course. But, I mean, do you think it's going a bit too far to set up special protest zones? Well, I think, firstly, I'd acknowledge that, you know, Taiwan's a good place to live where there's a high level of political activism, mostly non-violent, and um, a healthy level of political protest. Is, you know, people being a little bit fed up um, is probably, you know, you could interpret that as a, a sign of um, peaceful counter-protest where communities are using their democratic uh, systems via, you know, elected officials to try and move some protesters on. I think, you know... The, the mayor is probably taking the prudent course of doing this all by the books. The last thing you want is agitated locals taking matters into their own hands. Um, and also I'd say that, you know, from the point of view of the police that are the ones on the front line dealing with this sort of thing, um, in my experience in Taiwan, which is, you know, not doesn't go back decades, but just goes back a few years um, reporting on protests, the police have been um, pretty good, in my experience, with what I've seen, compared to what I've seen in places like Hong Kong, where you know they, you know, you can visibly see police let thugs and gangsters get in and rough up protesters. So, overall, the situation here is pretty good. And if um, you know if the the mayor decides or the city decides that they will set some time limits, then that's something that I'm sure the protesters will have an issue with. But ultimately. Um, you know that's the that's the law, and they'll they'll just have to get on with it. So, Ross, the unsightly protest camps. Well, they are unsightly, and uh, they are an inconvenience. And Taiwan, we'd like to think, is a democracy with rule of law, and there are channels to voice concerns about public policy issues that. Uh, can be pursued after a reasonable public protest is held. I'm not against uh, out outdoor rallies, uh, but uh, you know, Gavin, you and I, we both live not far away from there. We pass by there very frequently, uh, so it does impact um, traffic in that area. It is unsightly, um, and ultimately, the elected officials, regardless of the issue, whether, regardless of whether the elected official is the Min Jindang DPP, Kuomintang KMT, or New Power Party, uh, they're not going to make a decision simply because a small number of protesters are outside and are permanent or semi-permanently outside as well. It really has zero impact on public policy decisions. Uh, it, it, apparently, it takes a full-on invasion of the legislative UN, like we saw in the Sunflower Movement, to change public policy decisions. But 50, 100, 200 people being out there every day is not enough to change public policy decisions. So then, again, you, one has to say, why aren't you pursuing this by uh, other channels uh, to, if it really is a worthy goal um, as a matter of public policy? Uh, so uh, it's good that we're maturing to the point where we can move on from semi-permanent encampments around government buildings. What about the idea to compensate residents of the worst affected areas, Edward? <laughs> I, like, I, I don't know what the best policy is. For uh, Ed, keep in mind, Gavin and I live nearby, so uh, I think you should support it. <laughs> well, yeah. The only right answer to this question was absolutely. <laughs> yeah, as long as you guys are getting paid, then that, that, that's fine. But I think, you know, in terms of whether there are some issues that protest is still required, um, you know, one of the long-term camps that was um, there last year was the indigenous land rights um, protesters. And, 
you know, if you look at that issue, it was pretty complicated and they really didn't have any other recourse because they were a minority within a minority. This was a group that was a minority within the Indigenous land rights movement, but they were actually arguing with people uh, like Collis Jataka, the Indigenous representative uh, in the legislative Yuan. So for people like them, I just don't see many other options. And whether or not the most effective thing for them to do is to sit outside um, the parliament for months on end, uh, you know, that's that's arguable, but they obviously didn't think that they had any other avenues to go through. And I sort of, I can see where they're coming through, coming from on that. Now, as to, you know, the disturbance um, for local residents, well, you know, I would say, I would guess that most people haven't been living there as long as the, the parliament has been there. So, you know, that's what you get when you move into an area with a massive um, parliament building right there. That's true. I used to live near Buckingham Palace. The Queen was once upon a time my next door neighbour. She didn't invite me around for tea, though which I was most perturbed about. Anyway, before we go, the head of the Taijong Prison's Education Department made the news this week after he thought he'd come up with a good idea to get himself a quick EMBA, and that was by using inmate labour to write his papers. However, he got caught out and is now looking, well, rather daft. Now, the prison carried out an investigation into the officials' actions and found that the prisoners, who included those locked up on weapons and assault charges, were not pressured to write the papers and instead opted to do the work voluntarily. And the prison warden has had the best quote in this story and he's been quoted by local media as saying while the official's eagerness to study for an EMBA was highly commendable, his getting convicted criminals to write his papers for him was not. So Ross, there you go, good idea or not? It was an entrepreneurial MBA, pretty entrepreneurial, getting people conveniently near where you work to write the papers for you. Some might argue. Uh, well, first, on a more serious note, uh, I think it calls into question the quality of some of the EMBA programs in Taiwan, which have proliferated in, in recent years. Every university seems to have an EMBA program when they didn't even have a good MBA program, the regular MBA program to begin with. Uh, so we'll, I'd be very curious how the school itself is looking at this issue, not just the, the prison where the, the gentleman was employed, but how his professors in the school will be treating him now that they know that uh, he didn't submit work that was his own. Uh, but the, who possibly could believe that the prisoners volunteered? Uh, when, 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 when your jailer says, uh, you know, how about writing my thesis for me? It's pretty risky to say no, because then you're going to find yourself moved to maybe a, a, a less less nice accommodations and maybe get a, a work detail that is not as enjoyable. So obviously it would be pretty risky for a prisoner to say no. It seems to be a heavy element here of uh, covering up actually what really transpired. Well, I mean, notwithstanding Ross's good point that the quality of the uh, qualification may be in, in dispute, the, um, you know, this shows the, potential, the academic potential of Taiwan's prisoners more than anything, doesn't it? You know, if you've got guys sitting there and, and, and women in, in, in uh, prison cells that could be doing, obvious, well, obviously can do things that are useful, such as get EMBAs. Um, I would have thought it's a good sign to get all the prisoners um, on these sorts of academic programs so that they get a good second chance once they, once they get out. Well, we yeah, I mean, we could encourage uh, the members of the public to write to prisoners uh, or, or link them up. You know, a buddy program, Gavin, where prisoners and members of the public can link up so that the prisoners can help uh, you know, members of the public like us with our academic needs. 
and uh, we could outsource it to people in jail, and maybe they could get a few more cigarettes. Gavin, you're always looking for new commentators for Taiwan this week. That's, a That's true. I'll get, I'll, haven't gone through. I'll get on to the Taiwan prison. Obviously, if they can write papers good enough to get an MBA, they can come on the show. Although I would like to have seen the quality of some of those papers. But the, the, the articles didn't actually say about the quality of the papers. Which, again, I think goes to the issue that uh, if it was good enough for the school or the, the academic program, one has to wonder what kind of standards and, and whether they were very rigorous or not rigorous at all, that uh, the, the, this, the, the work was good enough. And, and it could be that the prisoners are highly educated as well. Uh, I've known many smart people who've wound up in jail, Gavin. Thank you. Anyway, on that note, we'll move on very quickly because I do not want to end up in prison. And that was the show for this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined today in the studio by Ross Feingold. Uh, happy holidays this weekend. And on the telephone by Edward White. Good evening. And thanks for tuning in to this edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT. And sadly, there won't be a show next Friday as we have a nice long weekend holiday next week, it being the tomb-sweeping weekend holiday. But don't forget, though, to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps for all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.